Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, and this is a comics podcast. The sort of comics podcast for folks who've been known to read books about comic books or potentially listen to audiobooks of books about comic books and who are therefore very excited to meet with my guest joining me today for the first time. My guest today, Alex Segura. Alex is here today to talk about his new prose novel, which is called Secret Identity. It is coming out as we speak, and I have gotten my hands on top secret audio files of the audiobook of it, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the audiobook version of it. So we'll be talking about that work today, as well as his really interesting career work in comics. So this is the short version of his bio. He is the SVP Sales and Marketing at Oni Press, which is a comics publisher, and the author of Star Wars Poe Dameron Free Fall and the acclaimed Pete Fernandez Mystery Series. He has also written a number of comic books, most notably the superhero noir The Black Ghost and YA music series The Archies and the Archie Meets collection of crossovers, which of course features the all-important Archie Meets the Ramones, which I'll be bugging him about later. (laughs) He is a Miami native and he lives in New York City with his wife and children, where he presumably also listens to the Ramones. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This is, uh, I'm so excited. It's been, uh, we've been chatting about this for a while, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. We have like a lot of people and interests in common. So I, I like that we're making this real. Um, yes. And I've, and I've really enjoyed listening to the sample of the book that I've had so far. I'm going to read your back cover to my listeners in okay. as dramatic and acting way as possible. So here we go. It's 1975 and the comic book industry is struggling, but Carmen Valdez doesn't care. She's an assistant at Triumph Comics, which doesn't have the creative zeal of Marvel nor the buttoned-up efficiency of DC, but it doesn't matter. Carmen is tantalizingly close to fulfilling her dream of writing a superhero book. That dream is nearly a reality when one of the Triumph writers enlists her to help create a new character, which they call the Lethal Lynx, Triumph's first female hero. But her colleague is acting strangely and asking to keep her involvement a secret. And then he's found dead, with all their scripts turned into the publisher without her name. Motherfucker. Uh, (laughs) Carmen is desperate to piece together what happened to him, tang on to her piece of the links, which turns out to be a runaway hit, of course. Um, uh, But that's complicated by a surprise visitor from her home in Miami, a tenacious cop who is piecing everything together too quickly for Carmen, and the tangled web of secrets and resentments among the passionate eccentrics who write comics for a living. So... I'm really excited. <laughs> that was great. That was a great, uh, great, re- dramatic reading of the back cover copy. Well, yeah, you have a really good voice actress on the audio book. So. She is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually just listened to it for the first time uh, a couple days ago. Um, and I emailed her because we're doing an event on the tour at my local indie here in Queens. And um, I sh- she just like, now that's Carmen's voice. Like now I can't think of Carmen talking in an, in any other way. And the way they did the comic book sequences, because there's comics interspersed in, in the prose um, mm-hmm. was really cool. It just sounds like the effects and the, the sound effects and the, uh, the way she changed her voice for the links versus Carmen was really fantastic. Now, speaking as somebody who has only listened to the audiobook, or, sorry, are there actual like comics or you're narrating comics in the book? No, no, no. Yeah, there's comics. So you're reading like you're reading Carmen's pr- the prose. And then, it, you know, in those action sequences in the audiobook, you see mm-hmm. actual comics drawn by Sandy Gerald and lettered by Taylor Esposito. And so oh, they're Taylor's in black so and white. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor's great. And, uh, and Sandy is just amazing. And so 
he really evokes that 70s look, you know, without being like an Im- without imitating, without like doing mm-hmm. like M- Miller and Jansen or whatever kind of style. He he like brings his own thing to it, which is really fantastic. That's so cool. I can say that now I definitely have to look at the print copy, but I really yeah. did like not need it, technically speaking, which is quite an achievement. So that's a huge compliment because I was really wondering not a, you know, I just went into it. I was like, how are they going to audio this part? Because it's a comic. Like, how do you do audiobooks for comics? And and I know, I know companies do it like graphic audio does like audio narration for comic books, but I guess I just didn't expect it to go so well. So I'm, I was pleasantly surprised. Well, this is such a big work then to have all those different elements in it. I obviously have been aware of your love of noir, and you certainly are extremely well qualified to write about the comics industry, having worked in it for so long. Um, mm-hmm. But this is a really cool setting for it, you know, being New York in the 70s. And, and I like how you're working in the specifics of that time period in the comics industry mm-hmm. into the story. Uh, it looked like you had done a huge ton of research <laughs> specific to the project. Yeah, when you and I were talking about the show, I was like, well, here's my reading list, which, um, look, I read a lot of those books as I was, you know, just a fan or just kind of learning about comics, but I reread a ton of them and then read more just for this book. And it's uh, research is a fancy way of saying just like whatever I was, I was obsessed with it for years, like for the years mm-hmm. after I, fi- I finished my PI series and I was like, what am I going to do next? And I knew my next like original crime novel, like not counting the Star Wars book was going to be in comics. And so... I remember having lunch with my editor before he was my editor and I had like Sean Howe's book <laughs> and he was like, so what are you doing? And I was like, I think this is my next thing. Like, I think my next book is going to be in comics and I'm just trying to figure out what it is. And so I read, you know, I love Sean's book and I reread it and um, I even chatted with him. I was like, it seems like the seventies are your favorite period. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, when you read the history, you read Marvel, the untold story, he spends so much time in that era. And it was something Mm. about that, that made me wonder, like, maybe that's the time to drop this book because it, you know, it's such an awkward period for, I mean, comics are always, you know, everyone's always saying comics are dying, but this was particularly a dire point for comics, like before the direct market, before, um, you know, media exploitation, before like there were TV shows for every character or movies for every character or action figures. And, um, it just felt like, you know, everyone felt like the Titanic was heading for the iceberg at this point. And um, it was so insular. And I think people felt that comics were disposable and not really like literature, which they are. Um, and so it just was an interesting contrast to me as a as just a reader. Like it was really a night that it felt so unlike comics today. But the stories back then are wild. Like I just feel like there was a lo- also a lot of editorial, not the same level of editorial oversight that you have now where it's very corporately driven and um it's more about protecting ip not not to say that the comics aren't risky but it's it's different it's a different kind of risk and creators could creators could can do more now like if i have an idea and it doesn't fit into the bucket of marvel or dc i can just do it myself like it's it's going to cost you money or it's going to you need to fund it but you have options whereas in the 70s you know if you're writing moon knight that's kind of what you're writing like you have to kind of throw everything into that into that which is makes for some weird and wacky and kind of fun stuff to read well, I've been really enjoying sort of seeing how different authors and archetypes from the comics history world appear sort of through the funhouse mirror of the story. Because, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you're setting it in a smaller indie publisher. I am really not super knowledgeable about indie publishers during that time period. I know about underground comics with an X, so to speak, yeah. you know, but like. Oh, you'll I, like where the book goes in, I think. <laughs> ah, well yeah. then. Um, but, you know, but I don't know as much about like what it was like if you're 
I guess like Warner or EC or like whatever it is in that period. Um, yeah, there was, I, I spent a lot of time reading about like those, I call Triumph a third tier company company because it's just, they're never going to level up to Marvel or DC stature, whether or not, not quality, but just size and, and profitability. So the companies I looked at were places like Atlas Seaboard, which which tried to compete with Marvel. They tried to swipe a lot of talent. They were founded by the Goodmans who had been booted from Marvel when Stan yep. was elevated. Um, and so I found that really intriguing, but I wanted Triumph to be not, you know, not even that high profile. So I think I looked at places like Quality and Charlton and mm-hmm. Warren and Instant Amalgamation, like all these, all these original characters. Like the, the first question I often get is like, oh, is Doug Detmer... Alex Toth, or is this person, that person? And it's never a one-for-one, one. Yeah. first off, for, for legal reasons. Like, obviously, you can't do that. <laughs> but, um, but also, what's the fun in that? Like, I wanted to create, like, I wanted it to really feel like, like, as a reader, one thing I loved about Cavalier and Clay is I read it as a fan and as a, like, student of comic history. I was like, this could have happened. Like, this could have very easily happened. Yeah. Or at least the comic book stuff could have happened. And so I wanted people who are insiders like us or like really into comics to read it. And, you know, if you squint a little bit, like maybe there is a legendary Lynx comic somewhere or maybe Triumph did exist. So that verisimilitude was was kind of the top goal. Yeah, yeah. Like I just like there's that the editor in chief, he's absolutely has some Stanley qualities, but he's not yeah. Stanley, but there's enough Stanley in him for it to trigger in me a certain kind of emotional response to the sort of person he is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's totally an archetype. And but I yeah. did also want to add some humanity to him, which I think probably you'll see it unfurl a little bit more as stuff happens. But I didn't want I didn't want it to just be like, oh, this is like J. Jonah Jameson or Stan Lee or a typical yeah. like so and so. I wanted, you know, and that's the challenge as writers. Like you want to play with the tropes and the archetypes, but you also want to give it a little heart and make it feel new. Otherwise, what's the point? Well, your protagonist is certainly very fresh. Um, I exciting female uh, Cuban American lead uh, character in this, and um, you know, are, were there like particular stories or books from women in the industry or interviews that were really influential for crafting her? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I went into this book thinking, okay, this is comics. I know comics. I can just write it. You know, I'll just write the book. Like, I don't need to, like, spend too much time. And it became this whole endeavor, like, not just researching the facts, like, i.e. reading stuff like Marvel the Untold Story or what have you. But I had to interview a ton of people. Not had to, but it was... I felt like I needed to to really validate what I was doing and feel like I was being thoughtful about it instead of just kind of going in blind. So I spoke to a lot of women who worked in comics, um, like Linda fight who wrote the cat, which was the first ongoing Marvel super female superhero written by a woman. Um, and she worked in the Marvel bullpen. So I got to talk to her and kind of what I did really was I walked them through kind of the big plot beats. And, and I was like, is this even plausible? Like my murder aside, like that's obviously, yeah. like, that's obviously not going to happen. That doesn't happen as frequently in real comics, but um, she was super helpful and so kind. Everyone was really generous with their time, which I was, I felt like so blessed. Um, and I spoke to Louise Simonson, who obviously has written a billion amazing comics like X-Men and X-Factor and Superman. And, and, um, and Louise was helpful because she gave me perspective on what it was like to work at different companies because she worked at Warren and then she went to Marvel. Um, and I spoke to Karen Berger and she gave me a lot of her insights. And I know, and Karen did start a little bit later. Like she came into comics like in the early 80s as opposed to 1975. Yeah. But I'm going to go on on a limb and say 
a lot of things didn't really improve <laughs> from 1975 yeah. <laughs> to the early 80s. So I felt like her insight was really valuable. And um, Lori Sutton, who now writes a lot of the capstone like DC books, like Batman, those kind of prose art books that they put out for kids. She worked at Marvel and she also worked at the Comics Code, if I'm not mistaken. So she she kind of saw it from different angles and I got to get some of her perspective. Um, and my mother-in-law worked in publishing for a long, long time, not comics mm. per se, but in that time. So she sent me a lot of her recollections of, you know, just working what it was like to be in publishing at the time. And, um, you know, and I also had sensitivity readers and beta readers who, who, you know, I'm, I'm a straight man. So I, you know, I have, a, I don't have that experience that Carmen has. So I wanted to make sure that I was in the ballpark, you know, it's a mystery. It's not, you know, it's, it's not, that's what it is. It's meant to entertain, but I also really felt like I needed to be as thoughtful about it as possible. Always a good, always a good decision. Always yeah. a good decision. Yeah. No, I, um, I really like her perspective. I'm, I'm interested in her. I, I have like a, like a, a feeling for her in my mind and, you know, certainly like so much sympathy for what she's going through in the office. I, I you know, I love her relationship with her roommates and yeah. going out in the city. Like it must be a lot of fun to be able to set the story, like in terms of the, that particular period of time in nightlife in New York and music scene. That was so fun. I mean, obviously I'm a music fan and that era of like, you know, the end of the late sixties into like CBGB and punk and, you know, Lou Reed, uh john kale patty smith talking heads ramones like that whole vibe um was just so fun to like just live in even obviously pretend to live in but just write about mm -hmm. it and have it be there there's a great book speaking of research there's a great book called love is a building on fire by will hermes and it talks about his his life you know growing up in new york um through the 70s and it's not just about like punk rock it's about Latin music. It's about jazz and mm. I love jazz. And so I wanted to really like, um, I wanted to give that perspective of New York as this melting pot, not just culturally, but musically and, you know, financially, you know, the, the, I, I also love that New York is so unlike the New York of today. It's like, you know, it's, it's just, um, financially in ruin, you know, not that New York of today is like perfect by any means, but you know, it's, it's definitely the New York of 1975. Yeah. It felt very much like you were a New Yorker and you were trying to survive, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, she talks about how though she's like, she's reassured that there's people in the street. And that's always a thing. That's like a very New York city dweller in general thing for us is like, well, there's other people who are out and about. And that's why we know we're not going to get like kidnapped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You and might I get your that. wallet taken, but you're not going to get like kidnapped and murdered. You yeah, know? you might there's get mugged, but you'll here. be okay. Um, exactly. And yeah. I remember that just having, you know, I moved to New York in 2006 and i remember that that sense of like being surrounded by people but also feeling completely isolated you know you're alone mm. because you haven't made that network yet so that sense of like isolation and you know being in a new place that was really just my experience and i i imagine it, it rang true for the people that went through that in the 70s just that idea yeah. that you're you're uprooting yourself from your home and your culture and um and your family to go somewhere to chase your dream, which I could relate to her. And I mean, she went about it differently and the result was different and there was a murder in her story, but <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, that's pretty primal stuff. I think. It is. Yeah. Um, I really appreciated also like the stretches of, of Spanish. Um, okay. Of course, like I understand some Spanish and so that's 
a thing that I can do. But um, I was curious about like, yeah, like what are your thoughts about having just, you know, stuff be in Spanish and stretches and the, the significance of that choice? Yeah, you know, it's it's been this ongoing discussion, I think, online. But for me, it felt like, look, this is who she is. And when you italicize something and it just you're overemphasizing it in this weird way as if it doesn't, you know, as if it's an other, like it's something mm. else. And it's really who she is. Like she's speaking in Spanish because she can speak in Spanish. It's her culture. Like her parents speak Spanish before they speak English. Like, um, you know, and if it means that the reader has to do a little bit of work or maybe doesn't understand the whole thing, but gets the experience, like, I think I did a good job of explaining what they were trying to say without having to do the, you know, immediate translation, which sometimes you have to do, like, if, if you're writing something in Spanish that you need to, like, make sure that the reader understands uh, and without having to italicize it. So, you know, that someone's going to have to, like, you know, like to make it stand out in an awkward way, I guess. Um, and that's, you know, we went back and forth in the editing process and I was like, I feel really strongly that I don't want this to be italicized. I really want it to just be who she, it's who she is and it's who her parents are and who her family is. And I want it to kind of just feel like it's her talking as opposed to like emphasizing it too much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, like people need the practice. There's also my attitude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, do a little legwork. It's okay. Yeah. Like, um, so I don't know. I I, yeah. I I appreciate that. It's like it's it's it uses the same alphabet as English, guys. It's not. It's not. Yeah, and it's weird. actually much more logical a language than English. <laughs> like yeah, it just yeah. literally you you sound out what you're saying and that's it. Yeah. Um. So I I I appreciate that bit of the cultural relevance in that too. Oh, good. Yeah. I so um you know like you're doing a, a prose book about comics that also has comics in it. Like what. Mm. Like what is the mo what 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 is what motivates the decision to do something and and a prose and a dominantly as a prose format for this particular story? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I wanted to blend. I guess selfishly, I wanted to blend the two things that felt like really elemental to me, like crime novels, mystery noir, plus comics. And I remember once I tapped into the hook of what it was going to be, like that it was going to be the story about this woman coming into comics in the seventies and, and not, you know, losing control of her character. And it, it's in many ways, like a meta meta look at IP, you know, if you want to really mm. like zoom out and think about it, like she's yeah. got to try and reclaim this idea. But um, it, it, it reminded me of a thought I had like forever ago, like in college when I was reading Cavalier and Clay and I remember loving it and just being like, this is fascinating. This is exactly like, sometimes you get a book and you're like, this is the book that was written just for me. Like it just mm -hmm. has everything I want. And I remember reading it. And the only thing I really wanted that didn't come in the book was the comics. You know, I, you know, I know Dark Horse did it eventually, but I wanted to read the escapist books. I wanted to see yeah. like what the art was like. And it, it felt like not as a criticism. I was like, I just remember having that longing and I filed it away and, and whatever. And then when this opportunity came up and I started thinking seriously about doing a prose novel and comics, I realized like, well, this is my chance a to do that and kind of fulfill this dream that I didn't know was a dream when I had the thought, but also to show the story in a different way. And I just also didn't want it to feel, you know, perfunctory, like, oh, he's just doing it to show off that he knows a comic book person and that, that he can add comic pages. And, and I didn't want it to feel like the photos in a, in a nonfiction book where you, you kind of look at them if you want to, but it doesn't add to the narrative, you know, like just something, some dressing. I wanted it to feel like part of the story. And so a lot of the comic book sequences, hopefully most of them are in conversation with the prose. So you're reading the prose and then you get pulled into a comic book sequence that gives you a break or a breather from the narrative 
but it's also echoing what's going on with Carmen because Carmen has created the links and, um, you know, you'll get to the scene right away. So I'm not spoiling anything, but there's a, my favorite moment with Carmen is when, you know, Harvey shows up awkwardly. He's hammered. He's been out like, and he decides like, Hey, I want you to co-write this comic with me and blah, blah, blah. And and you won't get credit, but you know, it'll be worth it. And, and she's very smart. Of course, she sees that this is a trap in some way, like there's red flags all over the place, but it's her dream and she's not getting opportunity elsewhere. But anyway, so once they start brainstorming, like he's just spit, you know, spitballing blindly because he's just coming into this with no expectation and no ideas. And she busts out these notebooks and she's like, I've been working towards this moment since I was a kid. Like, this is the dream. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. Um, and so you see, you see a lot of her, my point is you see a lot of Carmen as a character in the links, but not in a one for one way, like, a mm-hmm. you know, not like, like Carmen is writing herself as a superhero, but you can kind of, I hope that the reader can read the prose and then see echoes of Carmen in the comics, which I think would be cool if it worked out. That's really neat. Yeah. It also kind of makes me think about how in the, um, the extraordinary gentleman series is almost the reverse, right? Where you have the, the, this, this bits of pulp novel that are yeah. kind of taking place in the world of the novel, whereas the comics are the, the body of the book itself, really. Yeah. I love stuff like that. I love, uh, I love meta stories or stories that kind of weave themselves through history. Like, um, the two examples I think of randomly lately are, this is bizarre, but like that thing you do, you know, that movie, that Tom Hanks movie, like it's, it's a sweet mm-hmm. movie. I remember liking it a lot as a kid, but they evoke the era so well. And it feels like, oh, this could have happened or something much darker, like James Elroy's work where his characters are always weaving through history, yeah. like involved, involved in the Kennedy assassinations or involved in like Bay of Pigs and all these historical moments that lead up to Watergate. And I remember reading that in my twenties and just being blown away. His prose can be so harsh sometimes, but when he does it well, it's like very evocative. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I really love stories like that. Kind Have of we talked about this. James Elroy before? Cause like, I'm a huge no. fan. Are you? Wow. You yep. we're just best. We just became best. friends. Yeah. I, well, it's funny. I, I, I actually almost did an episode of the podcast last two years, whenever it was that COVID first began thousands mm-hmm. of years in the past with frequent guest on the show, Brandon Wilson, because we just both are huge fans of it and we're kind of like mainlining stuff and talking about it. And oh man, then I was like, it's so off the mark for what this podcast is doing that I was like, I can't really quite explain it, but um, we should you know, do this, it. I, I've yeah. just invited myself to the conversation. We're going to do it. We're going to have it here. Graphic policy radio, James Elroy Roundtable, for just because. <laughs> so for folks who don't know who he is, he is a, I, I mean, I think it qualifies as neo-noir, even though yeah. he's been d- doing around for decades and decades at this point. Um, writer who's, I think of a lot of his work as being rooted in historical fiction about mm-hmm. predominantly LA, but not exclusively LA, um, and the way things worked in the space of between like 1950, predominantly between 1950 and like 1975 is more most yeah. of the stuff sort of takes place. Um, and I really love it. LA, uh, Confid- LA Confidential it was based on one of his books. Yeah. The book is better than the movie. Oh, for sure. And um, oh, yeah. that whole qu- that whole LA quartet of books, because LA Confidential is part of a series, and yes. it's not even the first book in the series. Um, nope. The Black Dahlia, then The Big Nowhere, and then LA Confidential, and then I think there's one more, White, White Jazz. Jazz. Yeah, White yeah. Jazz is a messed up book, but 
Um, I love it because it's just so bonkers. It's such a crazy book, but it's also, he, you know, it's not just chaotic. Like he knows what he's doing and his characters are all are so complicated and so messed up and so tormented that it's just fascinating. Like the way he writes um, and he's a character too. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the, the, the things that it definitely shares with your work as well is that this is, it's not just noir, it's historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, he has more like actual elected officials and stuff like that, but you are both still doing noir about a specific period in history that you've actually researched. It's, I mean, for me reading um, the American Underground books, it was such a trip when like Jack Kennedy shows up and even lesser known characters like Hoover is like a key player yeah. in, in those books. And it's fascinating because I love history and I love noir. And so it just felt like wow, I guess we're just excavating how much of an influence James Elroy was on this book because, um, yeah, I mean, I love how he does that. And he does it so smartly and so so well. He doesn't, like, hammer it too hard. And that's something I really strove for with this book. There's cameos and there's little nods to comic book history, but it's not like, uh, you know, Jack Kirby shows up and says, hey, Carmen, don't give up. You know, it doesn't, it never right. gets like that. <laughs> it never gets that cheesy. No, it'll be like a comparison, like you're like you compare somebody's work to sort of what Jim Starlin is doing, for example. Like, yeah, there's a comic book convention scene later at the Commodore Hotel, and she name checks people she sees, which were people I double checked and made sure were there, which was fun. And those were like the early days of the comic convention and stuff, you know. Yeah, I think it's you know this is before like comic shops became a big thing, but Phil Suling was starting to have his comic shows, and you know it was really just a bunch of tables in a hotel ballroom like people selling comics they had and a few creators would have panels and i I guess the the closest thing i could approximate it to now is those old the old big apple cons that yeah um were still going on like new york comic con came in and like took over but big apple con kept going and i don't know if they're still it still happens on long island sometimes for example like they would have it there those are the kind of shows i loved because you could just wander around you can chat with like whoever and it's not about like oh did i miss this panel or you know this hollywood this trailer but it's just you're just kind of like bsing with you know an artist you admire or a writer you admire and it's like walking artist alley um but yeah that's probably the closest modern example of what that show was like it's so funny like i have had some very big name contemporary comics creators on my podcast before but i also Mm -hmm. know for sure that like the people who i'm suddenly super like freeze up around is like any bronze age or silver age artist i'm just like like who they call us jansen like i'm just i've I've been sitting on the phone number of bill sinkevich for a while because i kind of can't so I can't believe I'm telling this to listeners because I'm like completely like, oh my God, this is going to be. Oh, he's I'm, a sweetheart. He's I so, know. I'm, so kind. I'm sure. But I've just, I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to like, you know, I don't know. Anybody who made, basically anybody who made significant art when I was a small child or before I was a small child is like, uh-huh. it's very scary. No, I, Whereas, yeah. yeah. Like I have no fear talking like the most popular person writing like right now. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. It's fine. Like you're, yeah, you're my age, that. whatever. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm like that with, um. Yeah, like with the people that defined me as a kid, like Chris Claremont, like for whatever reason, like I interviewed him for a crime website just talking about like um, Dark Phoenix as the ultimate like femme fatale in comics. Mm. And and, um, and I just, 
and I just kind of geeked out with him about Sovereign Seven, which I don't know if anyone even remembers. It was like the comic I he did, did after after the X Men, like for DC, and he was just kind of like, "Are we going to talk? About, are we going to talk about the story, or is this going to be just like you asking me about Sovereign Seven? But yeah, I totally relate to that. There's just certain people that you like, you can't be professional, or you try to. Or I'm just too scared. I feel like I'll be professional, but I'm just completely intimidated. I know it's silly. I yeah. um, but I was going to say, how did you get into noir as a genre? Um, that's a great question. I mean, as a kid, I think the turning point for me, and this is so funny to me to think that it had such an influence, is that I, I grabbed The Godfather off my grandfather's shelf when I was super young, like the way book? younger than I, yeah, the book, much younger than I should have. Uh, I think I was like seven or eight, probably <laughs> maybe not eight or nine. Um, and it is not as, it's not as elegiac as the movie. It's not as like royal or cinematic or obviously not as cinematic but it's not as epic feeling as the movie it's a pulp novel it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's got a ton of sex a ton of violence uh a ton of crude language and i remember reading it and just being fascinated but something in particular that blew me away is and i think it's fine to spoil a movie that's like 50 years old is, please <laughs> you, know, you know the scene where sonny's at the toll booth and gets blown away i remember reading that in my grandparents house and just putting the book down and being like are you allowed to do that like you can set up a character to be the lead character and then kill them and that's like and it was i guess my first uh inkling of you know you know just pulling the rug out under from from under readers and yeah um he does it's puzo does it so well and puzo's a great was a great um pulp writer and um after that i really got into sherlock holmes and agatha christie and things like that but i didn't get into noir noir until i actually got it day job in comics and I was working at DC. I had just moved to New York. Um, and you know, comics were my hobby. I'd worked at wizard and I'd worked at Newsarama. So I, I was, I was, but I was still like the fan press. I was still kind of like doing it for the love of the game, I guess. But mm-hmm. like DC was, it was my job. You know, I was getting paid and making a living and there were expectations and you get a stack of comics every week that you have to read through, which sounds awesome, but then it's work. Um, yeah. So I started reading a lot of noir to kind of escape. So I read stuff like Jim Thompson, uh, Raymond Chandler, Patricia Highsmith, who is a huge influence on this book. Um, mm. And then more, more modern people like George Pelicanos and uh, James Elroy. That's when J- Elroy was, was a big thing for me and Michael Connelly. Um, so, and that's what really got me thinking, like maybe I'll try to do this for fun. Like as something, you know, you know, talking about moving to New York and feeling isolated and feeling like alone, I was really homesick. And so I started writing this story. I thought it was going to be a short story about this, not even a PI yet, but just like this kind of screwed up ex-reporter trying to find a missing person. And then that became Silent City, which was my first novel. And and then midway through the novel, I was like, I think I can write another one. And it became a series of five. And so then we're off to the races. Awesome. Yeah, I (laughs) am. You know, we haven't talked much about like the origins of your comics career, and I'm sure that's always something that folks like to hear about. How did, how did you start working in the industry? Um, it was I think I was I was start I was early in college. I was working. I had just finished an internship. I thought I was going to be a journalist. I mean, I took creative writing classes. I was an English major in college, and but I also was like the editor of the newspaper. I worked at the radio station. So journalism was where I was headed. Cause I knew how to, I like to write. I like to write on deadline. I like to write like, you know, the, the good thing about journalism is it teaches you to write quickly and not be, not overly romanticize the process. Mm-hmm. Like you're just putting words on paper. You're going to edit them. They're going to get better. Um, 
And then I was kind of rudderless for a little while. I did a reporting internship for a local paper and I was kind of like, well, what now? They didn't hire me because, you know, internships end. And so, um, yeah, and <laughs> internships, um, they just make you work for free and they don't give you a job. That's the way yeah, it exactly. in the industry. Yeah. yeah. And then they extended my internship for a little bit, but then, at, then they were like, hey, sorry, you've got to go. Um, so I got this job. It's a Spanish language. It was like a PDF magazine. I don't even remember what we, hmm. but it, yeah, it was. And then I eventually got a job at the Miami Herald um, working for the international edition, which is a fancy, they just package the paper for, you know, Latin America and, and other areas. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I just use these skills I have like journalism and use them in comics. And so I reached out to um, Mike Duran and Matt Brady at Newsarama. Mike Duran is still there. Matt Brady has gone on to do other things like write Rick and Morty books. And he's got a, a, a website about science and how it fits in with comics, which is fascinating. Um, and I just said, Hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter. I'd love to write about comics. And, and they just kind of threw me in the fire. And I did, I remember the first people I interviewed were Ed Brubaker about, um, point blank, which was the book before sleeper, like led into sleeper. Um, and Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray about um, a book called The Resistance. I think it was like a random Wildstorm book. And Peter David mm. about Young Justice. Oh, so, man. Yeah, it was so wild. Yeah, and that really dates me. But um, it was really a crash course, <laughs> a crash course in comics. And so I was interviewing a lot of creators over email and, and sometimes on the phone. And and then I saw, and I was an avid wizard reader even before I became mm. like as a kid, I was a wizard reader because if I didn't have enough cash to like buy all the comics I wanted, I knew if I had five bucks, I could buy wizard and kind of get a sense of what's going on. Like, yeah. Um, and so I'd read wizard and, you know, and then at this point I'm writing at Newsrama and I see that wizard's looking for an associate editor. So I threw my hat in the ring and I flew up to New York, like having never really done that and like never really left Miami. Like I went on, you know, I've been on vacations, but never like uprooted myself that way. And you know, I thought, oh, here I am going to the big city, but you know, Congress, New York, is, is not the big city. It's like uh, very suburban. Um, but I worked at Wizard for a couple of years, and I met a lot of people who I'm still really good friends with. Um, and that was that was my first kind of in-person comic book gig, where I was going to conventions and meeting creators and building relationships. And um, and then I moved back to Miami for a couple of years, and um, I started reviewing graphic novels for the Miami Herald, where I was working as an, a copy editor. Um, for Connie Ogle, who is the book editor. And that's how I got connected with DC, DC's publicity department, because they were sending me review copies. And um, I remember messaging uh, David Hyde, who was the head of PR there. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, look, I'm going to be in New York on vacation. I'd love to get a tour of the offices. And I've never really shared this story in such detail. But um, he said, yes, I'd love to have you come over. Would you want to apply for this job? we're looking for a publicity manager. And so I'm on vacation and I'm like running around trying to like buy a suit. <laughs> um, and I do the interview gauntlet. I meet with Paul Levitz. I meet with, with David, I meet with, you know, the SVP of sales and marketing. I meet with David's boss and just run the gauntlet. And I had, ho I hoped that I would get the job and I did get it, but you know, you never know. It was just such a random like lightning strike. And then I was at DC for a long time. Yeah. Um, but my first comic book credit, that's a long-winded way of saying my first actual comic credit was in a DC book of all things, because, you know, at the time DC was not, I don't know what the rules are now, but um, if you worked on staff, you couldn't write comics. Like you couldn't write Batman and also be editing Superman. They, they just had a, right. yeah, it was a no, <laughs> you know, you can't like double dip, I guess. And so Mike Martz, who was the Batman group editor, I mean, I went, you know, whenever I was talking to editors, they knew 
they knew what my goals were. They knew I wanted to write. They knew I was working on a novel. They knew like, but I wasn't, hopefully I wasn't obnoxious about it where I was like pitching. I wasn't pitching anyone, but, um, you know, Mike said, Hey, we're doing this Halloween special. Do you want to write a story in it? And my first thought was like, is this allowed? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, that's fine. (laughs) And so, and I was already kind of out the door. I knew I was, I, I knew I was, I think, I think I left for Archie a couple months later. But um, I wrote a flash in Frankenstein, like the Grant Morrison Frankenstein version from um, Seven Soldiers. And um, oh, yeah, yeah, it was wild. It was fun. And I think it's in it's in the DC Halloween special, I think, 2009. And yeah, and then I left for Archie and at Archie, things were a little looser in terms of it wasn't as hardcore about, well, if you're doing this, you can't do that. And right. um I got to write a few like standalone. My favorite ones are the standalone Archie ones, like the ones that are, you know, I love the crossovers and I love like um, the new Archie stuff, but it was really hard to write classic Archie because being funny is really hard. It's really hard to do like physical comedy or a gag comedy. And so, you know, I wrote a few of those and then the CEO, John Goldwater called me into his office and, and it was like a publicity meeting. He said, you know, Gene Simmons wants to do Archie meets kiss. And I was like, that'll mm-hmm. sell. Yeah, and I and I said, "Do you want me to? Can I write it?" And I just I don't even know why I did that because it's, in retrospect, probably not super, you know, professional. I guess like just throw myself in there as the writer. But he he supported that, and it turned out to be this bizarre, fun story. Like, and you know, I had to it became do a, a deep... movie, right? Or no, no, that was sorry, that was Scooby Doo meets Kiss that became a yeah, movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wish but, um... Archie meets Kiss would become a movie. That would be wild. But um, make that happen. I next. got to meet. Okay. Yeah, I should make that happen next. I got to meet Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and. Wow. Uh, do signings with them. And that was that was wild. Well, and that's that how you know you're a real New Yorker also, right? Like, I mean, actually, the more I'm thinking about it, you had the monkeys meet the Ramones. The monkeys. Like, <laughs> you did have the Archies meet the monkeys. I also enjoyed that. But you had the, yeah, yeah. the Archies meet the you kiss. You had the Archies meet the Ramones. Like, there's a bit of a New York theme happening here. Yeah. I mean, those are the bands. They met that Blondie, kind of res- right? Yeah, they met Blondie. They met, um, yeah, Blondie, monkeys, Ramones. And, and if you look closely in Archie meets Ramones... Um, the talking heads are there. Um, and and you yes, see Debbie Harry there. That. Yeah, yeah. So like stuff like that was just a trip. And obviously we can't do the we couldn't do those comics without participation from the artists or the estates. So I guess you know it's official. Like you know Gene Simmons read the scripts and he signed off on them. And with the Ramones, um, obviously none of the original members are alive, but it was the estates that that got to chime in and and give notes and and that was that was fun. That is really cool. I um. When we heard that Archie's Meet the Ramones were happening, a friend, my friend Spencer was just on my last episode podcast. We I, we started just like riffing like lyrics. Oh, Ackerman? To, Spencer Ackerman? Yeah, yeah. We just oh, started riffing lyrics to Chinese rocks that were about <laughs> going to Pop's malt shop. Um, oh, yeah. Unlike literally everybody else in North America, I did actually not grow up reading Archie comics, so I wouldn't have been able to tell you what Pop's malt shop was, but I was really excited about coming up with spoofs to Chinese rocks by the remote. Oh, so what were, what were your earliest comics? Oh, um, I mean, I grew up reading newspaper strips for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my first superhero comics were X-Men, like uh, Jim Lee. Oh yeah. And I became like, and, and my, and then my, my, my book that was like the, my book was X Factor, the Peter David, Larry Stroman stuff. Oh, yeah. So I kind of missed the Claremont. Even though I am a proper age to be a Claremont kid, I actually kind of missed the Claremont. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think what I was doing, we have a lot of overlap. I was reading the new stuff, which was like Claire- Tail End of Claremont, Jim Lee, and then, you know, Fabian, Nicieza, and Scott Lobdell yeah, later. Fabian. But 
um, I was reading classic X-Men at the same time, which mm. was like, it was, it, or I think around that time, I think around the shadow King saga, classic X-Men was doing the Dave Cockrum era, like Dave Cockrum's second run. And so you're seeing, you're meeting the, seeing the star jammers, the brood and all that stuff. And it was a wild thing because obviously the two threads are never going to meet because they're, they're moving in the same direction, but it felt like a good crash course in what was happening. That is true. But tell me about like about the working on the Archie stories. Like you have these very archetypal characters, you have these sort of classic iconic bands. Like how how do you make it make sense or not make sense, but be delightful, I guess I should say. Yeah, no, that's a challenge. Like I didn't want to fall back into doing it the same way each episode or each issue. Like um, Archie meets Kiss, I treated Kiss like you know, s- supernatural beings, which is not far from the truth. Like they just show up from a different dimension and right. they they are, you know, they're trying to save save Riverdale, and it, it's a Sabrina spell gone wrong, which is, I know, an Ar- it's an old Archie trope, but it's also like a beloved Archie trope that Sabrina casts a spell and screws something up. Um, and with the Ramones, I just thought, well, Matt Rosenberg and I were like, well, let's just do time travel. Like, let's just send them back in time, like, and have them learn a lesson. Like, the Ramones teach them basically how to be a band. The issue opens with them screwing up a battle of the bands. Like, they're, I guess they lose, and then they have one last shot to make it to win the competition. And so they, they then Sabrina sends them back in time and they meet the Ramones and the Ramones are obviously at the peak of their power. Um, and they show them what it takes to be a band. And it's funny. And I, I, you know, it's really, it ends up being more heartfelt than you would expect. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then with stuff like the monkeys, um, that was just a, you know, Archie gets conked on the head with his guitar and he starts, you know, and suddenly this new Riverdale style becomes classic Archie in terms yeah. of how it's drawn um and the monkeys are there and this it's tr- this trippy like 1960s story and then he wakes up and he he f- archie remembers it all and um a lot of the other ones especially in the archie series were more linear so because you're following them on tour and they run into churches and then they meet tegan and sarah and then Bl- when they meet blondie it's not like blondie from the 70s it's like blondie today because they're still a band and they produce a record and yeah. i really wanted to show a band that was older and still kind of kicking butt like still doing stuff and the b-52s i thought was i think the twist we threw in there was you know dan parent has been drawing archie forever and i said why don't you just draw this like you did in the 80s you know like let's just pretend this is in the 80s as opposed to like spending any real estate getting them anywhere like time travel or a a dream sequence like we'll just set it in the 80s because archie did exist in the 80s and we can do that so Mm -hmm. um and that way we got to play with the b-52s like the original lineup yeah, and have everybody be there. Yeah. <sighs> really sad. Um, yeah, yeah super I, sad. People were, like, commenting, like, wow, like, whoever's making these decisions at Archie has actual good taste in music. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, that's, yeah, like, Archie, you know, it might not have been my thing growing up, but there are people making decisions there who have good taste in a lot of things. Yeah, there were so many bands, you know, it's funny because the runway, when the Archie's book got approved, um, we Archie was doing, like, a series of one-shots, and... Mike Pellerino said, you're approved, but we need to start locking in bands. And so that we had so many bands that we wanted to get that we just couldn't get. And then the book, just the sales numbers were not, you know, were not huge. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't go past eight issues, but I think we were pretty close on like talking heads, which would have been fantastic. Um, and I was, we got pretty close with the replacements too, which would have been amazing. Um, oh, but you know, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would have just been, and I think there were some other bands we were talking to like um, mountain goats and that would have, that would have been interesting. I love the Mountain Goats, so. Very up, update, sort of like with the Tegan and Sarah piece. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I really, I I had a whole panel at New York Comic Con around the premise that 
comics are a medium that introduces a lot of people to new music that they might not have encountered otherwise. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think um, I think it opens up doors that people weren't expecting. Like you're reading a comic and you you're just you either it's a name check or just like some kind of reference, and it, it leads you down a path you weren't expecting. Yeah, definitely a gateway drug, as it were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For a lot of the music here, what so um, you know, we heard a bit about your 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 gateway drug into comics for yourself, etc. Um, mm. What are some of the uh, comic books that you feel like people who are intrigued by the links and sort of the world in this comic might want to check out or vice versa? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I read a lot of seventies comics while I wouldn't say I was researching it. I was doing it for fun. And that was kind of part of the, um, part of the trip, like just enjoying this reading. But one of the books that stands out for me because it's so weird and also so great is the seventies, uh, Doug Mensch, Bill Sin- or it's eighties, uh, Mensch and Sienkiewicz run on Moon Knight. Um, because it takes this kind of corny, like crime fighter character and adds so much depth to him. And so, you know, multiple personalities and different, you know, pretty, and, and I think, look, what saves it, what not saves it, but what really makes it is Bill's art. Like he just like, he levels up in a way, like he started out really looking like a Neil Adams, like not clone, but he was definitely evoking Neil Adams in his early work. Like he did an early X-Men annual that. Um, you start to get an idea of where he's going and then the doors come off with Moon Knight and then you see it obviously progress even further with the new mutants. But um, that was really great. I also read a lot of um, the Miller Daredevil stuff. I read, uh, reread and um, a lot of female, you know, you know, female superheroes like Spider Woman, like that launched Mm. in that period, like, and Linda fights the cat and Miss Marvel. Um, And some of it hasn't aged well, but I wanted to kind of get the, see what the baseline was like what was happening with these comics you know with female characters and how would it be be different if like carmen wrote it like what would her influence be yeah um and so that's kind of where we landed with the links and there's a moment that you'll see if you, if you look at if you get the the print version where and this doesn't spoil too much it's like eventually they run out of the scripts that harvey turned in and so nobody knows that carmen wrote the character and so they have to like keep keep the gravy train rolling and they have to bring in other talent um, but it's also a third rate publisher, so they're not going to pay top, top dollar. Um, so they bring in these two like hack creators. And so there's one comic sequence that is not by Carmen or by Doug Detmer, the artist who's like this, you know, critically acclaimed artist, like this toast like artist. Um, and so it's a real disconnect because it looks nothing like it did before. And that, that kind of was comics. Like sometimes you'd read comics mm-hmm. and there, at least when you and I were reading, there'd suddenly be a random fill in and you're like, what? Like who, who oh yeah, and like sometimes you couldn't tell who was who from from one book to the next in half the cases. So yeah, and I know at Marvel, like more in the eighties, like the shooter era, he would really impose like you got to have a couple drawer stories because if somebody's late, you need we can't miss deadline. And and that was really really a hardcore thing that I learned from from just beta and research readers like to telling me like, no, 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 you, you couldn't be late. You weren't late. Like you had to be on time. And this is something that's a very recent occurrence where you could bump a book and it wouldn't be a huge deal. Like it would piss people off, but it wouldn't be like this seismic thing. But I guess if you're just serving the newsstand, they're not going to accept like stuff being late. Yeah. I mean, I, I do view part of it as just sort of like the timelines are impossible I mean, you've worked in the industry. The, some of the timelines expected of artists are not physically possible. And I think sometimes the art suffers from it. Like, 
you'll yeah. just be like, this is a mess. And I suspect this person could have done better otherwise. Yeah. And it's also the level of detail and the expectation on the artist has just grown exponentially, but the timeline hasn't really changed for monthly comics. Yeah. Cause you know, and that's why you see now you see bursts of artists or you have like a few regular artists and you do it kind of by arc or you, and then you have like a break with another artist that's of a, na- a name and I get it. And I think it's a good smart way to keep the quality up and, and make it thematic as opposed to, you know, it's 10 different pencilers trying to finish it because we want to make a monthly deadline. Double shipping, which is when they were sending two comics from a certain title in a month, just seems like the most insane concept. I know. And, and like, um, nobody can afford it. And the, the workers can't keep up. Like, I remember it as a kid with the Spider-Man books, like amazing Spider-Man would always double ship in the summer. And that's when I was like, well, I can't, I'm either going to just only buy Spider-Man or I can't buy the X-Men or I'm yeah. only going to be able to get, you know, it was just, um, and, but Mark Bagley drew them all. So I guess he's just super fast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, um, you know, there's certain styles that lend itself towards that more than others too. Right. Like, you know, there's a reason why it's taking Wonder Woman Historia so long to have each issue come out. It's because it's fucking art. It's like yeah, for it's a beautiful. museum. Yeah, it's I mean, I looked at that first issue. To... Oh my god, right? But it's not to say that like all art has to be detailed or ornate. I mean, there's that great dro- illustration somebody did that was comparing. <sighs> I don't remember if it was a boot drawn by ACO. Uh, I think it might have been versus a boot drawn by Sal Buscema. And you're like, yeah, the Selbashema boot can be a lot faster and is also attractive. Like it's, but what's the problem is some artists have lost the and is also attractive part of right. Do it faster. Um, yeah, like that's you true. can simplify things and have it be beautiful, but like please also have it be beautiful. I I cannot tell you the issues I've picked up of things where I'm like somebody literally forgot to draw this character's nose, and this is not like an anime choice. This is like, oops, I forgot to draw this character's nose. Yeah, I mean, for me, comics, if I can't get into the art, then I just, I mean, I just can't read it. I just, um, I don't mean to generalize. It's just like, yeah, it's such a visual medium and you have to be engaged. I have to be looking at the art and it doesn't have to wow me every panel, but I have to feel like there's some movement and there's some stylistic choices being made and and that the artist is telling me a story. Like the the old saying is like, if you can read a comic without reading the word balloons and the artist has done what they're supposed to do, like they're telling you the story. Um and I can say that I'm a writer, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. okay. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, you want the words to complement the art, but it's a visual medium. And if the art doesn't work for me, it's not, I'm probably not going to keep reading the comic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as someone who's like thinking about comics as a medium mm-hmm. um, and the the power that you can use with it, that doesn't really translate to other places. Um like where where do you see like people doing really important comics work right now that you know maybe folks should be checking out and might not have heard of right now? Um, what have I been reading? I'm just looking at my shelf. Um, I really like Nate Powell's book. He did this memoir about um, protesting, basically in the time of Trump. It's called Save It for Later, and it's it's uh it came out came out right around the pandemic starting. Hmm. Um, and he's a great artist. He did the March books. And, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, just really, really talented. And it, it felt like it was such an interesting kind of nonfiction approach to, you know, a not an interesting nonfiction comic. Um, I'll read anything Jaime Hernandez does, and mm. I, I don't think he obviously he's not, you know, he's not underrated in any way. But it's no. just like it's just like uh, he's definitely on my Mount Rushmore. And so um, I just finished up his his wrestling book, like this. Uh, Katie Skelly edited it. Um, 
about oh, I love all Katie his, Skelly. She's great too. Yeah, she's great. She's great. I love um, Julia Wurtz's stuff. I think she's fantastic. Um, she did a book about just like her drawings of buildings, but she also had a lot of great like memoir style comics. Um, I think Gabrielle Bell is really great. I haven't read her new stuff, her newest one. Um, I'm just trying to think, you know, I'm in a very like cartoonist headspace lately. So I've mm-hmm. been reading a lot of stuff like that. Sarah Glidden's really great. Um, and, you know, at, at Oni, we put out, the stuff we put out is so different from, you know, at, at Archie, it's an IP company. So it's like, we're, we're focused on the characters we own, but at Oni, it's creator owned. So it's really whatever people bring to you and you think is worth investing to publish. Um, so books like and you guys Brenna, are known for doing your like open calls and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's important. It's important to have a slush pile. Like, it, you know, obviously it's hard to manage, but it's also important to like engage with rising stars and, and kind of be that you don't want to always be the first step. Like, you know, we have name creators that come and work with us, but it's important to like be accessible, I think. Um, yeah, those are the things I can think of off the top of my head. I read a lot of superhero comics too. Like, um, what am I reading now? I'm catching up on Rorschach, which I didn't, you know, just to be honest, I didn't think I was going to get that into just because it's wow, like, wow, okay. You're, yeah, but it, you're, you're like the one person ahead. I know who's reading who's reading the Watchmen spinoff books. I'm like, what? Yeah, no, I didn't read. You know, I I was at DC when the before Watchmen stuff was coming out, so I was reading it then. But um, I just love George Fornes' art. I think George is really great, and the story he takes really some really, good. uh, and yeah. King's story takes some really bizarre turns in in kind of a pleasantly wonky way. Um, what else am I reading in terms of superhero stuff? I like Black Widow, Kelly Thompson's book. I'm I'm very pro Chip Starsky as well. Um, oh yeah, I, lo- I loved. I like Nubia. I like uh, anything Vida really Yala. Vida Yala stuff is great. Uh, Danny Lore. Yeah, I, and I did. Lo- I loved just, Historia. I mean, I've known Phil a long yeah. time, so it was so cool to see that blow up. Uh, as someone who's written a noir comic and obviously cares a lot about it, um, like what are the things that you feel like make I have thoughts about why the genre translates really well from the screen to the page, but you know, what are some mm-hmm. really great noir comics and like what makes something work for you? Because people can really do a lot of put on with it. That doesn't quite gel where it feels like it's all surface and no substance, you know, oh, yeah. like, there's so yeah. many good works too. Yeah. You're tapping into like a very strong opinion of mine, which is good. I love that you asked me that because I feel like a lot of people throw the term noir around and don't really understand what it means. Like what the definition of noir, it's become a marketing term, which is fine. Mm-hmm. It's where people are shelved. Like sometimes people are, you know, this is a noir and it's like, well, is it really? Because to me, noir has a very distinct definition. It's basically, it's this primal thing. It's about someone who's been painted into a corner and has to make a difficult choice and then has to take responsibility or try to cover up that decision. Like, you know, Double Indemnity is the best example like mm, uh, of a film noir. Um, and it's not always good people making tough choices. It's often bad people making even worse choices and then having to cover them up and do bad things to cover them up. In the case of like secret identity, um, she makes a difficult choice in that she, she agrees to be a secret. She chooses to make her identity a secret and create this character. And then she has to kind of dig herself out of that and figure it out. And then another trope of noir is that there's always a cop and for better or worse, whether it's a good cop or a bad cop, but there's always the law kind of stepping in and sniffing around and trying to piece things together and adding to the, you know, the, the ramping up the the drama. And so there is one in, in secret identity. I, I really love that character because she, she's just like, doesn't take any BS and she's just like kind of cutting through whatever Carmen's defenses are. 
For me, I have, in terms of crime comics, the ones I I go back to, I really like the Reckless books that Brubaker and Phillips are doing now. Mm. Um, I love, you know, Matt Rosenberg's a buddy of mine, but I love his... his stuff with Tyler Boss is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really like Newburn, which is Chip's new book with Jacob Phillips. And I, but I think my holy grail in terms of crime comics is probably Stray Bullets, which is like, oh, yeah, it's just really intense. And um, it's like his, it's David Lapham's opus. And it's, um, it's gone on for so long. It's really become this, this epic saga, which is fascinating. Um, Nadia Shamas had a really great backup story in the first issue of Newburn as well that I was like so psyched to see her in the credits because she's such a talent. Um, she's so great. What's sorry? What's yeah. Newburn? Newburn is this crime comic that just launched launched from Image. Chip Starsky's writing it. Uh, Jacob Phillips is the artist, and Jacob does um, that Texas Blood, which is another great crime comic. It's a rural noir uh, that Chris Condon writes that is really fantastic. Um, Hmm. So I think we're seeing kind of a nice, like healthy uptick in crime comics, which is great because for a long time, you could only like tell those kind of stories through the prism of superheroes. Um, Yeah. And it's really its own thing. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be a cape wearing a cape to be in a crime comic. I um, I know. I also like, I think, you know, Saladin Ahmed, um, and I'm forgetting who worked on the. Oh, art for Abbott. This shit. Yeah, Abbott. Abbott. Like, I love having the crime comic then where the detective is not a, is actually a journalist, so I don't have to like hang out with. I him love that. Yeah, much. but um, I thought that one was good too. Um, and that was a very, a very specific decision for me when I was creating my PI character, Pete Fernandez, who is Cuban American. But I think so many private eyes are like ex-cops or like you know hard drinking you know security guards or ex-cops like trying to you know reclaim some lost glory and i made him a journalist because you know journalists are inquisitive and they're okay with bending the rules to get the information they need but they aren't necessarily like balls of testosterone you know like it's not doesn't have to be like the alpha male scenario yeah it's less interesting in some ways not that i love those older works but they've been done already do you know what i mean yeah, if you're going to add to the mythos, which I felt like I was doing, like I'm going to add my piece to this like orchestra of PI stories, like I want it to be a little different and I want to flip the tropes a little bit. Like um, you know, he's an alcoholic, Pete is an alcoholic, but there's consequences. Like he doesn't have 10 gimlets and then hop in the car and save the day. That to me felt really corny. And it it, it works when Raymond Chandler writes it cuz he's writing it and it's Raymond Chandler and he's like great. But it doesn't work in lesser works, I guess. Um and so I wanted him to really struggle with his alcoholism and like kind of fight that battle in as realistic a way as possible that's really cool yeah well thank you so much for joining me for the show uh tell my listeners where's the best way to keep up with your awesome work uh yeah you can find me at my website alexsegura.com or on twitter alex underscore segura and i'm also on instagram at alex segura jr so this is great thanks so much for having me thank you and to our listeners we will be having a new episode of Deep Space Dive, our Deep Space Nine podcast coming your way very soon. Um, speaking of like classic noir comics, I'll be joined by the biggest Moon Knight fan, Moon Knight comics expert I know. And we'll be talking about the comics behind the show and possibly the show, depending how we're feeling about Disney in that moment in the near future, too. So those are some episodes you have to look forward to. As for myself, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A <laughs> underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.